podcast. I'm here with a very special episode today, one of those episodes where I just, you know, meet someone on the internet and they, they come on here because I just find them interesting. I'm here with Alec uh, Muhibian. Is that how you say your name? Very, very, very accurate. Yeah. <laughs> well, that Muhibian. was just completely, completely that's by chance. That's the old school way of saying it. Yeah. That's like the, uh, that's the, uh, you know, the, the real way of saying it. The American way well, of saying it would just be like Muhibian, but Muhibian. Well, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I know I have no, no, I have no knowledge that would have led me in that direction because it's, it's not Armenian is not a Slavic language. I've studied a bit of Russian, studied Arabic. It's not related to any of those. So this, it was just a complete guess. Yeah. You know what it, what it sounded like. This was just complete luck. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, Alec, um, you might know him from Twitter as the filthy Armenian, um, but just introduce yourself. Who are you and what do you do for, for our listeners? Yeah, I'm. Um, I am. Uh, I am a filthy Armenian, and I, I have a podcast called Filthy Armenian Adventures, uh, which is how we met because I invited you on and came to your home and made a, had a great episode, the most popular of 2023. All right. Um, just recently, filthy. It's a. I call it a travel agency for for the soul. It's kind of this a literary, comedic, cultural podcast um, that isn't quite like other shows. Um, I also have a sports show called The Back Wall with. Uh, Glenn Rockney, and I'm a filmmaker. In my you know pre Twitter life, I kind of started posting in 2021. Before that, I was never I never posted. Um, and I uh, my tweet my pre Twitter life is as a filmmaker mainly, and um, before that as a writer for like uh, you know, the back of the book sections of of journals like Weekly Standard that would publish something literary by me, which was a diminishing market. Um, my films include, my first film was called 1915. It's a psychological mystery set on a hundred years after the Armenian genocide in LA. And then I made three documentaries in a row. Um, I am not alone about the 2018 revolution in Armenia from the inside. Um, oh, there's a, a documentary called Truth to Power that I also produced about the band system of a down. And then most recently, a documentary called Invisible Republic about the war in Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh that uh, horrifically transpired in 2020 and it was f- completed completed just a couple months ago with the um, complete uh, with the eradication of the Armenians from from that land um and most recently there's a short film that's that's uh, Oscar eligible called Nowhere which we might screen in on January 6 um so oh, yeah that's my yeah. that's my background in miniature yeah. So, um, yeah. You mentioned January six, not not the not the assault on our democracy, but you're having you're having a party in L.A. on January six. Is it open to the public? I can I'll be there. I yes, can invite it is. People? Yes, it's a you can invite people. It's a it's a tickets are on. Uh, you can DM me for the ticket link or go to tiny.cc/faatix. Um, it'll be a live show and party um, till late in the night, and it'll be a really great time. It'll be the second live event. I've, uh, we've done the first one was in September. It went really well. This is at a really cool location, um, a really cool kind of secret location uh, in East LA, and it'll be a great time. And yeah, it'll be it's a live version of my show. There'll you know I, I'm I'm excited about Richard being there, and we'll have some fun. I think <laughs> with some predictions for the new year um, with you and um, Amanda Milius will be there, and other friends of the show will be there. Um, and it'll be a great time. And we're going to reclaim Christmas. You know, January 6th is Armenian Christmas. It's the 12th yeah. night. I want to try to turn into a Hollywood Christmas. Hollywood doesn't, LA doesn't do well with Christmas, but we need to change that. So um, that my, I'm beginning my campaign to, to reclaim Christmas this January 6th. 
Okay, great. Yeah, we'll put the sh- so we'll put it in the show legs so that people who are interested in come hanging out with us, they can uh, they can buy tickets. How much are tickets? Tickets are twenty five. Start at twenty five dollars. It's okay. it's a steal. It's a steal <laughs> for the yeah. for for a night of such revelry and uh, mirth. Okay, cool. Well, I've never. I mean, I don't do many real live events, so this will this will be fun. Yeah, I'll be there. Oh, um, definitely be fun. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I wanted to. Talk, I did watch your document documentary. Uh, I am not alone. Um, we'll get into that. If people want to, uh, you know, stop this and uh, go uh, go watch it, they can. It's available on Hulu Prime. I watched it sort of like a movie. Like I didn't know the recent history of Armenian politics, so I could like be surprised. So I'm like, you know, like no spoilers if you want to watch it like like I did. You just want to watch it like a movie and see what happened because you're not you're not sure which way it's going to go. So if you're yeah. interested, yeah, you could just stop and see it on Amazon. Hulu, right? It's it's wherever it's on Amazon, get. iTunes, Tubi. Right. Um, <clears throat> I don't think it's on Hulu uh, because Hulu doesn't do. Yeah, it's on it's on all the others. So Amazon, you know, you can rent it, or or Tubi has it for free, but with commercials. Um, mm. So it's definitely as you can. I mean, you know, you can attest. You can tell me because it's been so many years now since it happened. Uh, you know, like I was, I, it was on this big festival run right after the revolution happened. Um, and then the pandemic happened and now it feels like it was a prehistoric time to me, to me. But if you don't know what happened in Armenia, which most people don't, it's quite a riveting tale. I think you can attest to that. Yeah, it was a good, it was a good film. I really, uh, it started, I thought it started out a little bit slow. I was like, these Armenians, you know, they're not, they're not as rowdy as some other people in their revolutions, but, uh, it got, it got interesting. Uh, it got interesting in the middle and near the end. The um yeah before we get, we'll get into that but first let's just like talk about like uh, your background what makes you filthy by the way I, I was with you 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 didn't smell or anything or no. anything why, why are you a filthy Armenian well filthy Armenian is an old slur which I uh, uh, was kind of uh, reprised by Trevor Noah back in and he got in trouble for it by like the with you know like the Armenian lobby and stuff in like twenty twelve I don't know around 2012 13 14 15 he 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 made a joke where you would have expected the punchline to be like dirty jew or something you know but it, but his punchline was filthy armenian um and there was a campaign against him for that so it's kind of a reference to that and you know reference in general to my um you know my my lack of respect for political correctness which hmm. is which is kind of you know what's what else is new now, but that's been the case for me ever since the beginning. I mean, my formative experience was sort of rebelling against the, the political correctness of my surroundings in L.A. in you know the by the year two thousand, I would say. So, like every my entire my my origin story is you know was a was a, a pr- prospective uh, rebellion against wokeness before it had gotten anywhere close to what uh, ended up choking out the last decade of American culture. Yeah. And so how, how old are you again? I'm 38. You're 30. Okay. So we're about, we're about the same age. So we, we have yeah. our contemporaries. Um, the, uh, uh, so you, how did you become, how did, so you, you were born around 85, right? How did you end up becoming a filmmaker? How did, how did you get into that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I wanted to be basically, I wanted to be a prose writer. Um, and given the fact that I'm a early ish millennial, like we both are, um, you know, I grew up reading, I got, I got really literary pilled kind of, you know, in the same with, through politics, I would say it was all part of the same thing. I, I, I'm not somebody who a lot of people became a lot of people like online now, like they became, uh, conservative or by being gay 
I became gay by being conservative. Um, <laughs> it was like it, it set me along of uh, the transgressive path very early, and it, it was kind of like my my introduction to art, to cinema, to everything. Not you know not a hundred percent, but close. Um, I kind of. I basically, there was no, I, I was, I dreamt of like writing essays, creative essays for Playboy magazine and for mm. the Atlantic back when it was mm. good, like when it was a mm. real magazine in the two thousands, mm. people forget the Atlantic was still actually really good. Michael Kelly, when he was the editor and, and for many years after he died in Iraq in a war that I foolishly supported at the time, um, the Atlantic was a really fine magazine with a lot of like actual diverse voices and good writers impossible to imagine now the only one left over from that era is caitlin flanagan who's really good but uh basically there was no room for creativity in the world of print or journalism i went to dc for nine months after graduating ucla and that was 2007 to 8 so when the recession hit all the publications were just on in a graveyard cycle. They hadn't figured out how, yet how to monetize online, so they, it was a really bad period for print, uh, for print and print culture. I mean, it wasn't just about it was just like print and their online versions. There was no room for creativity whatsoever, and I realized I had to go back to Hollywood, where wh- once I came, I never, you know, in high school I made movies, but I was like, this is for rubes, uh, writing screenplays. I wrote a long screenplay. Um, I hated it because it's not screenplays are not meant to be read. Um, you're writing a manual for somebody to use, you know, to, 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 to build a, to like make a building, which is a, which is a movie. So I basically reoriented myself toward the movies because it felt like as hard as it is to make a movie and it's really hard to raise the money to make it to everything. It was the only place that I could realize my vision um, and it remains that way with the exception now of the podcasting realm, which is this brilliant new like frontier that opened up, uh, in the last de- you know, barely a decade, um, where, which I'm really excited about. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a, re- it was like a, a, a sudden switch in my twenties. And as the hundredth anniversary of the Armenian genocide loomed in 2015, my friend and I realized that we had to make a movie about the weird psychological, ghosts of this thing and how what it means to our very weird community that nobody really knows much about although kim kardashian's ass went a long way to finally getting us on the map you know yeah so you have to take what you can get in terms of in terms of representation um yeah. but that was kind of the so that was those are the inciting incidents of my turn to the film world yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I grew up like, yeah, I, I think I started being interested in politics maybe around the same time you did early 2000s. And it was, yeah, I mean, I read the old sort of blogosphere and the old like National Review um, and the New Republic and, you know, the the Atlantic. And there was not that many political websites. Like if you read smart political websites, there was only, you know, and bloggers, there was not that many. Um, and it was, you know, not no social media. So people weren't as insane. And you, you could imagine sort of one day, you know, you could be a writer for one of these and have a sort of genteel life. You know, yeah, genteel life. Oh, you, know, you write one piece every three months. That's like ten thousand words. Uh, you you're paid to travel somewhere and you know cover something. Yeah. You know, cover. But were these things ever profitable? I, I you know, because I think that some of them, even today, the ones that still exist, they're just sort of vanity projects of rich guys. I, I think they they live off donors, right? But I think donors must have just found somewhere else to. Uh, send their money because I, I don't think like it was like National Review was ever selling so many uh, articles or so many magazines that they could afford like these well-paid writers who just never wrote and just went on trips, right? That was always sort of 
based on funding. Oh, definitely. I mean, the the well, the intellectual journals were all based on funding. In fact, I remember yeah. reading sometime at some point that Ayn Rand's personal the Ayn Rand letter or the Objectivist newsletter. She at you know at some point uh, she would write her essays purely for her own newsletter, and I think that was like for decades, like the only actually profitable journal of opinion that was. So profitable on its own merit, on its own, just, you know, self-sustaining and actually made a profit because all the other journals, they, their overhead is way, is like way beyond their, their means. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely National Review has never made a profit. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. I know that the Weekly Standard was bankrolled by Rupert Murdoch, um, which by the way, is fine because that that's the easiest way to actually the easiest way to survive mm-hmm. is just to be the, a billionaire's pet project, uh, uh, you know, yeah, kind it's, of it's philanthropic. A philanthropy. Project. Yeah, it does a social good, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the easiest way because then you don't have to worry about. It. I mean, weekly stand. I knew about the financial circumstances of some Weekly Standard writers. I was never uh, employed by them. I just wrote the occasional like uh, book review and stuff like that, um, and I was happy that they were they were. You know, they had the balls to publish something that wasn't just political, you know, nonsense. Um, they they had like they had they had people on six figure salaries who were not even required to write. They were just expected to write at least once in a while. And you know these their senior editors. I mean, they had some sweet plum. It, it was a very enviable thing to look up to and be like, oh, that's what I'd love to do. You know, just write when I feel like it and get paid regardless. And get get good amounts of money now. In the old days, or even up till about the early two thousands, magazines like Esquire, Playboy, they obviously were profitable, and they paid tons of money too. I mean, the magazine, you know. And if you go further back than that, if you go back to like the thirties, forties, when magazines would pay short story writers like fifty grand for a story, what, what is the equivalent of fifty grand for a story? I think even maybe what was then in that money, 50 grand for a story. Mm-hmm. I'm not even, I, I, I'm kind of lost in the numbers, but they would pay a lot of money for pieces by Tom Wolfe and, uh, you know, the New Yorker, another example. So there are profitable ones, but the political yeah. ones have never been profitable as far as I'm yeah. aware. So it's never, so yeah, so, but that was a sort of winner take all market, right? So it seems like you have reached the end of the free recording for this episode of Clown Car. To listen to the rest of the episode, please consider becoming a paid subscriber. You have...